Thanks, team. Good morning, church. Once again, good job getting here on time today. I'm really proud. I suppose with iPhones and like smartphones, they help us out a little bit, but still, kudos. Um, hey, listen, I hope that this season of Lent you have been able to find rhythms of grace, times of peace, uh, moments of rejuvenation as you prepare for Easter. Uh, the idea of preparation has been very at the front of my brain lately for two reasons. One, my home, my wife and I are preparing our hearts and minds for Easter. We are excited to celebrate with all of you and with our house to celebrate the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the, the big celebrations in the Christian calendar. But also, we are preparing for the birth of a little baby. And there's kind of a lot of preparation that goes into bringing a little baby into the world. Which this is, our, this is my first. This is our first. And so everything is new and scary and beautiful, but mostly scary, but also very beautiful. And, man, there's a lot of preparation. I mean, from, like, the car seat to putting the crib together, which apparently you have to be a NASA engineer to put together the first time without messing it up, which I am not, obviously. Um, I mean, there's just so much that goes into it. And, and I have found in myself this eagerness to just like skip all of that and just get to the moment where I, where I meet her, right? Where she's there and I'm there and all is well in the world and I never sleep ever again. Um, but I sometimes do that at the expense of the moment, right? I miss maybe sometimes moments with my wife to prepare, moments to get my heart, get her heart ready for what's next, the, the future that is coming for us. And today, I, I feel that same way sometimes in the Lenten season, especially when I'm fasting for a season of fasting. I'm, I'm eager to, like, eat sweets again or eat meat again, right? And, I, and I'm eager to celebrate Jesus. I'm eager to, to get out of a season of, of quiet meditation and into exuberant joy, right? Um, but I worry at times that I would miss the moment, that I would miss this moment of preparation and what could happen to the moment of Easter if I miss a moment here now? Well, today we are going to continue in our marked series. Uh, and we're going to continue by jumping into the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, in chapter 13. And we're going to look at the longest continuous speech in all of Mark's gospel what, that Jesus has. And it's interesting because the title of today's sermon, if you were kind of looking ahead, is The End of Days. And so if you were kind of like looking at that title and thinking, oh, this kind of sounds like an end time sort of thing, you would be correct in that assumption. Uh, there, there is a lot of language that Jesus uses in this longest continuous speech in Mark that is connected to what's known as apocalyptic literature. And before I jump into the sermon today, I'd like to take a few moments to just talk a little bit about that, a little pretense before we get into the sermon to see what we're getting into today. Now, that, that term, apocalyptic literature, is something that's used for various portions of the Bible, prophetic and also uh, history. It is a type of literature that is found all throughout the Bible. Specifically, the book of Daniel is, is very apocalyptic in nature, and we'll get to that, but it's also in the prophets and, as we'll see today, in the words of Jesus. But I think when most people, or many people, when they hear that term, apocalyptic, they think of just like dark, fire, end of days. These kind of images pop into our minds when we hear that kind of word. But in truth, in the Bible, 
it, this type of literature deals with the mystery of God's plans for history and for his coming triumph at the end of days. And so what this kind of literature does is it looks into the past to see what God has done. And then it uses that to see what God is going to do in the future within the context of God winning in triumph at the end. Okay, so, so the book of Daniel deals with that. The book of Revelation deals with that. And the words of Jesus that we'll find today deals with that within the context of Jesus' ultimate triumph. Now, throughout many years, scholars have done a really good job, but a hard job of making sense of this language because it's, it's not easy. It's difficult language because it is not words that we typically use all the time, and it's not images that we typically use all the time. And even God himself said in Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And so I think it makes sense that every once in a while, it would take just a little bit more effort on our part to really understand what God is trying to say to us. And, and that's what I want to do today, to take a little bit extra effort to see what God is trying to say to us in his text. And so today, it's important for you to know that I'm going to put forth one way of understanding Mark 13. This is not the perfect way. This, this is not the way that encompasses all other ways. But it is one way that I believe that we can truly and humbly come before the word of God and allow it to encourage us, unite us, and inspire us together. And, and my hope today, is, and the goal today, is not to answer every question surrounding the end times. Rather, it is to humbly come before the word of God and allow it to speak to our hearts. Sound good? All right, yeah, some head nods. I love head nods. Those are awesome. So you may be thinking, too, what does the end times have to do with the season of Lent? Well, I, I think as we'll soon see that this season of Lent is a season of preparation, right? And the first response of Jesus to his disciples is one of readiness, uh, is one of getting ready, of preparing your hearts and preparing yourself for what is to come next. And so my first point here today, this is kind of the thesis statement of my talk today, is, is this. Living a prepared life prepares you for whatever may come. If you're taking notes today, I encourage you to write this down. Living a prepared life prepares you for whatever may come. And this is true not only in the Christian life, but in anything. If I live prepared now, if, if I start getting prepared now for my baby, I will be happier when I have the crib set up when I bring her home from the hospital, right? That just makes sense. And in the Christian life, it's the same way. As we live prepared now, it will prepare us for what God has in store next. So I'd, I'd like to begin with a quotation by N.T. Wright, a scholar in the New Testament and of the Old as well. He says this in his commentary on Mark 13. Christians increasingly need to realize that unless we understand the first century, we will not understand our own times or what sort of people we ourselves are called to be. And, and Wright writes this in order to emphasize the point that the New Testament was written by real people in a real time, in a real context that had a real language and a real way of thinking. And that way of thinking was influenced by thinking and prophecies and books of Scripture that came many years before then. And today we're going to look at some of that, that long line of history, to see what influenced Mark in his writing and Jesus in his speaking so that we can better understand who we are and what we are called to today. So the reason I'm giving 
I haven't even gotten to the sermon yet. So the reason I am giving so much pretense to this sermon is because this topic has split churches. It, it has created a lot of division and hurt inside of Christians, and that is not the goal today by any means. Again, if anything, I, I want to preach God's word and let it unite us, right? I, I want to I see us come together under the word of God. So if you're with me, We'll finally jump into the text, okay? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 13. Uh, if you are here without a Bible today, there are some over to my left and in the back corner. If you don't own a Bible, please, those are our gift to you. Take them and enjoy them. Um, but at the top of Mark 13, Jesus and his disciples have made their way into Jerusalem. And they will remain in Jerusalem until Jesus' crucifixion. This is like the last landing place in Mark's gospel. And while they're there, it's very important that we see that they come out of what's known as Herod's temple. And this is the temple, right? This is the big deal temple of the Jewish people. And most of the disciples are kind of like country boys, right? And Jerusalem is like Manhattan. So when they are coming into it, it makes sense that they're like, whoa, this place is so cool. And they, we see that literally in a little bit different language, but the same kind of feel. So when in verse 1, the disciples say this to Jesus, look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, which is the equivalent of, whoa, right? And so it's important for us to know that this building that they're talking about, this temple, was the biggest, baddest, most beautiful structure in like hundreds of miles. And so it makes sense that the disciples are impressed by seeing it. But look at Jesus' response to what they say. He says this in verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Kind of a buzzkill, right? So what is Jesus saying here? To us, it's like just another sentence. But to Jewish ears, this would have rattled their brains. Because what Jesus is saying here is not just, oh, this building that you see, yeah, it's going to be torn down. Because it's not just the building that I'm talking about here. This is the epicenter of life, faith, and practice for Jewish people. I mean, this, this is literally where God decided to set up his residence on the earth. His presence had not yet gone into the far reaches of the world. It was located in one spot, and that was it. And so when Jesus said, not one stone will be standing, what he was saying was an entire way of life will be demolished. it would have shaken them to their core. And so rightfully, a few verses later, we see uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus in verse 4, and, and they say this, Jesus, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Now, this question right here, tell us when these, these things are going to happen and what are going to be the signs that lead into these things happening is the question, it, it is the catalyst, the platform from which Jesus launches off of into this long, continuous speech about many things. And, and my theory, I guess, today, my, what I'm going to preach before you today is I think what Jesus is talking about here is, one, the destruction of that temple that, that we know about in 70 AD, which we'll talk about. I think he is also referencing the end of all things, the, the end of days, if you will. And I also believe that he is talking about his 
upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. In one response to one question, I mean, Jesus was brilliant. He was just this master teacher. He had a profound way of addressing the future while never missing the importance of the present, which is what apocalyptic literature does. And Jesus does it perfectly, beautifully here. So now, taking that, let's, let's read Jesus' response to this important question. So if you have your Bibles, we'll jump open here and we'll go to, um, let's see, start in verse 5. Jesus' response, he says this, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I think it's important for us to note that Jesus' initial response to his disciples is to not be unnecessarily afraid. And you, I can imagine that the disciples were afraid, right? If you were a Jew in the first century and someone told you that the temple was going to be destroyed, you would be afraid too. And Jesus' initial response is, don't, don't be. Have no fear. And, and, he, and he goes further than that. He says, he encourages, he instructs his disciples to be watchful for false teachers and fear mongers. Also to be shrewd in wisdom and not being put off by rumors of wars or wars themselves. And to recognize that these occurrences are not the end, but are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, I have just been recently introduced to the reality of birth pains, right? Not me personally, but through my wife. And, and I can tell you, I, I'm kind of one of those husbands that is maybe like too involved at times. Like I, I'm too helpful to the point where it's annoying. Um, and there have been times where, you know, my wife will have a contraction and she'll just, you know, bend over in pain. And I'm like, uh, uh, this is it. Uh, I'll get the car ready. Get the bag from the car. We're, we're going to the hospital right now. And Kelsey's like, just chill. <laughs> Slow down. And that moment of, of her birth pains my fear actually makes it worse for her. And, and in those moments, she wisely reminds me that these things must take place in order for her body to prepare a pathway to bring about new life into the world. And my fear doesn't really help that process for whatever reason. I don't understand it, but... So the image here that Jesus uses of birth pains is it's not a new one. Uh, in fact, Jewish prophets have been using it for hundreds of years before Jesus to communicate that God is going to do a new thing. That he is bringing about a new world and he is birthing a new world into existence, a new heaven and a new earth. And so Jesus finds himself in a long line of prophets saying, yes, indeed, he is bringing about a new thing, a new creation. The point that Jesus is making here, I think, it is made very clearly in his first sentence in verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. Don't be convi convinced by people who come in my name and convince you of the terrors of this world or the unshakable or, or, or the shakable qualities of this world. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying here is you take your cues from me, not about what's going on around you in this world, for these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. 
And I can tell you in, in our climate, in our cultural climate right now, I feel like a lot of people are afraid. They're real nervous about what's going to be next. And Jesus, again, says to us now, you take your cues from me. So hold on to that. We'll come back to that. The point that I'm trying to make here is this. Do not allow rumors to dissuade you from the truth. Do not allow rumors to dissuade you from the truth, whether they be rumors of wars or actual wars. God is in control. So Jesus goes on from here to press into the idea and the importance of endurance in his followers, to endure in faith. In verses 9 through 13, read them on your own this week, I encourage you. Jesus promises coming trials for his followers. This is what he promises. He promises beatings, trials before governors, councils, and kings. But at the same time, he says, when you are brought before councils, do not worry for what you are about to say because the Holy Spirit will come upon you in that moment and give you the words to say. In other words, even when you are in those trials, I am with you. The Holy Spirit will be with you. So again, holding on to that idea of not being afraid. And the church has never been a stranger to persecution. From the time when our leader, Jesus Christ, was crucified to this very moment, the church has been persecuted. And we saw a manifestation of the reality of Jesus' words that his followers would be hated just a generation later when the emperor Nero of Rome crucified hundreds of Christians because he called them this. He said that they, they were notoriously depraved and they held to a deadly superstition in Jesus. And, and because of that, he crucified and murdered hundreds of Christians. Jesus' warning here should be taken seriously by all Christians still to this day. Along these lines, N.T. Wright, again, I think helps us by, by summarizing it when he says this. Jesus told us, we would need to practice patience and to hold on to see the thing through. We should not be surprised if we are called through whatever circumstances to practice that virtue, however unfashionable it may be in our hurried and anxious world. The point that I'm trying to make here is this. Our future may be unknown, but our confidence comes from who we know. What tomorrow will hold is, is a little bit of a mystery, not completely, right, which I'll get to in a little bit, but what tomorrow holds for us is a little bit unknown, but God is able to be known, right? And so we, we press forward, not timidly, not, not nervous, not, not filled with anxiety, but we push forward in confidence because God goes before us. And so why, what enables us to do that? I think that question is being asked in the context of Mark 13. What enables God's people to be able to move forward like that? Well, hang with me, and I want to explain that a little bit. In the next section of Mark 13, Jesus uses a prophetic image from the book of Daniel. So we're going to talk a little bit about Daniel. This is where I'm going to kind of pause. We're going to do a little teaching, preaching moment here, okay? So hang with me. So in the book of Daniel, there is a phrase known as the abomination of desolation. And Jesus uses that here. So let's read Jesus' words first in Mark 13, starting in verse 14. But when you see, speaking to his disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Now it's important here to remember how this discussion got started. It got started with a question of the temple. When will the temple be destroyed and what will be the signs connected to that, to, connected to that occurrence of the temple being destroyed? And, and the reason I think it's important for us to ask that question here is because Jesus begins to use language that if we don't know the context of Daniel, we might not know what he's talking about. So the question is, what is Jesus talking about? What's the sign? So as I said earlier, the language Jesus uses of the abomination of desolation comes out of Daniel. If you look in your notes, I have listed there right where it comes out of in, in Daniel's book. It's actually only used in Daniel and then only again by Jesus in, in the Gospels, which is kind of interesting. So this thing or, or this person is an appalling object whose presence signifies imminent destruction for God's people. And Daniel, the context of these verses, speaks of a pagan army coming into Jerusalem, the city of God, and ceasing regular, regular sacrifices in the temple and setting up in its place a desolating abomination. So this is what happens in the book of Daniel. A pagan army comes in, and what do they do? They cease communion with God. They go into the temple and they destroy it. And what, what, what does that do? It destroys the Jewish people's main mode of communion and communication to God. You cannot do sacrifices there because an image has been placed in its place that desolates any hope of that. Now Jesus and Mark uses this historic and biblical image to essentially say, this is going to happen again in our time. And, and through the benefit of historical hindsight, we know that that actually did happen. Again, I quote N.T. Wright because I think he sums it up really well when he says this. In the year A.D. 69, one Roman emperor succeeded another, four in all, Nero, Otho, Vitilius, and Vespasian, each time with violence, murder, and civil war. And as Vespasian made his way to Rome to receive the crown, his adopted son Titus, with a massive army, entered Jerusalem, burnt the temple, destroyed the city, and crucified thousands of Jews. So what I think Jesus is doing here when he quotes Daniel is he is again forecasting the future without missing the importance of the present. And the reason I say that is because I believe Jesus is building an answer for his disciples. I don't think that what Jesus is doing here is laying out a calendar for the disciples to know when the end is going to come, but rather to teach them that things are changing and there's going to be a new way to commune with God. And it comes not through a building anymore, but through Jesus. So hang with me as I kind of open that up a little bit. You still with me? Head nods? Yes, I love it. Okay. Jesus uses the story laid out by the prophet Daniel of God's people enduring heavy persecution to prepare his followers for another destruction of the house of God. But this time, things are different. This time, the world isn't ending. Rather, it is their way, their mode, their world of understanding how to commune with God. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophetic character known as the Son of Man the thing you should know about the Son of Man in Daniel is that this language is used as kind of the foundation for which Jews build their understanding of what the Messiah is and then what we see Jesus to be. 
to hold on to that. This, this, this title of the Son of Man is connected to the Messiah. So in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man comes to God after a great amount of suffering for the purpose of, of freeing God's people and sending out God's gospel around the world. And Jesus literally copies and pastes from Daniel chapter 7 in what he says, and starting in verse 24 of chapter 13. Jesus says this, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Remember that sentence. And then, they will, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that amidst the most terrible, imaginable trouble they can begin to think of, the, the destruction of the temple, even if that were to take place, that's not the end of the story anymore. If the temple is taken away, communion with God does not cease. Later in Mark's gospel, in chapter 14, just, just a chapter ne- the, the next chapter, Jesus is on trial to be put to death. And while he is on trial, the high priest comes before Jesus and he asks him this question in verse 61. Are you the Christ, right? Are you the son of man, the son of the blessed? And this is how Jesus responds. He says, I am And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. An exact repetition of what he had just said, chapter before, which was taken from the book of Daniel. Jesus is connecting himself to a line that will not be destroyed. In order to kind of bring this picture fuller into your mind, let's, let's read from Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 13. This is Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is another term for God himself. And and he, the son of man, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so when the high priest came to Jesus and said, are you the son of the blessed? Jesus quotes Daniel, and it is incredibly likely that the high priest knew that quotation. And what Jesus was really saying is, I am, and even if you put me to death, God's story goes on. Even if I am crucified, even if you continue with this line of thinking of killing me, it is not the end. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, the point, my, my last point here is this. In the midst of terrors of all kinds, Jesus is victorious. Jesus wins. And the reason I can say that confidently is because of the story that I just told you. Because of what Jesus did on Calvary and then what he sealed three days later, rising from the dead. And so today, and, and with that, I shouldn't go further with that. When, when we think about the end times, we have to also consider Jesus' language. When we think about when it's going to end, again, I don't think Jesus was giving a calendar. When I, when I say that, I say that because of what Jesus says here. 
to his disciples, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So therefore, it's, it's not our job to guess when the end is going to come. Rather, it is to move forward with great confidence in who we serve. Because the grave is empty. And Jesus is victorious. And so my challenge to you today is this. Amidst this spinning cultural world of fear, Christians should have the reputation of not being afraid. In a season now where, where, where things look bleak for some, we have a hope that endures even beyond death. And the encouragement for you, the, the thing that I, that I hope you ruminate on throughout the, the rest of your weekend and hopefully up till Easter is that the temple was destroyed and still we have communion with God because of Jesus. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I, I ask now that, that you would seal your word in our hearts that God, whether tomorrow brings a new day full of hope and joy or, the, or tomorrow brings the end of days that we would move forward confidently in the knowledge that you are victorious, that you have not been beaten, that, that the end of days is wrapped up in your knowledge and it's good to be there because you are perfect and your will will not be thwarted. God, I pray that you would encourage us that, that this church would have a reputation of one who is not afraid but, but goes forward boldly bringing about the kingdom of God in our communities, in our jobs, in our homes, wherever we are. God, I pray that, that you would be with us, that you would be with this church this week as we go out of this place. Lord, we trust you and we love you. In Christ's name, amen.